910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. Today, we're going to take a look at Daniel chapter 6, a very familiar story of Daniel in the lion's den. And it's a story like the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the furnace that's so familiar and is told in so many cute ways that it's almost become a fairy tale and not theology. You got that right. (laughs) But rest assured, it's theology. This chapter forms another part of the chiastic literary structure that we keep talking about. But good news, we're almost done that. And just as a reminder, we put the chiasm from Daniel's chapter 2 to 7 on the homepage of our website, www.proverbs910ministries.com, so that you can see what we're talking about. Chapter 6 shows God's deliverance of his servant Daniel, which lines up with chapter 3, showing God's deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Something you'll see if you look on the graphic on our website and something I think you're going to see as we go through this chapter. Yeah. When we ended the last episode, King Cyrus of Persia, with the help of Darius the Mede, had captured Babylon, and Darius was placed as ruler over Babylon. This is confirmed by historical records that we mentioned the last time, called the Nabonidus Chronicle, a clay tablet from that time that's now in a British museum. Part of that clay tablet says, on the 16th day, Guberu, Darius the Mede, the leader of Gutium, along with the army of Cyrus, entered Babylon without any opposition. On the third day of the month of Arishamnu, Cyrus marched into Babylon and they laid down green branches in front of him. The city was no longer at war, peace being restored. Cyrus then sent his best wishes to the residents living there, his governor Guberu, then installed leaders to govern over all of Babylon. You know, with a name like Guberu, you can't blame him for changing it to Darius. Yeah, I know. I think the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) And Chris, where you left off is where Daniel's story continues. And I'll read Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then, thus Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Well, Rose, even if we didn't know Daniel's story at all, we could see there's a possibility of a problem arising. You have three officials of the same rank, And they're given the same authority. And then one outshines the others, and he's going to be in charge of the other two because of it. And there's money involved. Sounds like a recipe for disaster. Sounds like a soap opera. Nighttime (laughs) one, at least. Daniel had served in the kingdom of Babylon for almost 70 years by this time. He's got a good reputation. And most commentators agree that Darius probably set up the 120 satraps, who were kind of regional rulers throughout the country, within the first few years of conquering the city of Babylon. It's likely that the satraps would not only rule over portions of the kingdom, but would also be responsible for collecting the tribute taxes. You can understand why you would need trustworthy people set over these regional rulers. It would be easy to pocket the money without someone trustworthy looking over their shoulders and holding them accountable. 
Absolutely. And with Daniel's good reputation, it's not surprising that he was one of the top three set over the others. But God does something more. He makes the promise of the dead, wicked king Belshazzar from chapter five that we talked about last time become a reality for Daniel. If you'll remember from the last episode, King Belshazzar promised anyone who could interpret the writing on the wall would become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And now King Darius has done that. There's King Cyrus, then Darius, and then Daniel in the order of ruling. And the other high officials and the satraps were not too happy about the situation. In fact, they do plan to do something about it. And that is just so cool when you mm-hmm. see how God does that. Yep. We are told why the other officials were taking such a dislike to Daniel. Chris, you kind of alluded to it. Money could definitely be the thing that caused the trouble. Could be that Daniel was in the way of them pocketing some of the tribute money for themselves. But like you said, it could be that they were just incredibly jealous of Daniel's position. Or it could just be that they were disgruntled because they really didn't want to be subordinate to anyone who was supposed to be the same rank as them. Regardless, Daniel is in their line of sight and they've got to find a way to get rid of him. And there's only one problem. There's no dirt to dig up on him. You know, as hard as they try to find something to use against him, Daniel is, in the words of verse 4, faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Without any personal moral failures or any political moves to get him out of power, the men realize that the only way that they'll be able to bring Daniel down is to figure out some kind of new law that they know he will break. And the only way they can do that is if they know they make a law that goes against God's law. Right. Do you think any current politicians would be found faithful with no error or fault? I'm thinking not. (laughs) Not any. And that's exactly what they do. In verses six to nine, we're told, and I'll just summarize here. So what they do is they go to the king and say, all the high officials of the kingdom were in agreement that nobody should make a petition to any God or any other man for 30 days except to the king. And if anyone broke that, they should be thrown in the lion's den. Right. Back in chapter three, we saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told that they had to worship a gold idol. We know that goes against God's law. The historian Josephus says that this edict in Daniel's story was to be a government-appointed command to break away from any worship at all. But in reality, under this edict, Daniel and everyone else in the kingdom is supposed to direct all of their prayers to King Darius. He would, in effect, be a mediator between the entire realm and the gods, little g. No one was, was to request anything of God or man for 30 days. No one was to bring their prayer directly to their God or to another holy man who represented their God, except one person, King Darius. And we don't know why King Darius went along with this idea. A lot of commentators agree This would have united the kingdom somehow under King Darius, or at least that's what he thought it would do. In the ancient Near East, a king was seen as an earthly representative of that nation's gods. So the idea that for 30 days, Darius would be the sole earthly representative of the gods, kind of like a 30-day priest who was the only one who could be approached by anyone in the empire for any reason, would in respect bring everyone together. But not exactly everyone. Yeah, not exactly everyone. It was for everyone but the Jews. Because 
everyone but the Jews would think this wasn't a big deal. Right. The original inhabitants, the Gentiles, didn't have to renounce their faith in their other gods, and they weren't breaking any religious rules by doing it. The Gentile people had no problem accepting everyone else's gods right along with their own. So Darius acting in a priestly manner for a month wouldn't be a big deal. But Jewish law doesn't permit the worship of any god but Yahweh. So prayer to anybody else would be a sin. And that puts Daniel in the hot seat. We also know that King Darius likes Daniel, and he knew Daniel was loyal. But for some reason, the king doesn't think about the position that this edict puts Daniel in, and so he signs it in the law. Yeah, and if you've ever studied the book of Esther, you know that according to Medo-Persian law, when a king signed a decree into law, it became irrevocable. They would never send someone into office to spend the first umpteen hours just signing his name to reverse laws that have been made. And, you know, as we see in Esther, it can't happen that way. They had to figure out a different thing to do, not just reverse a law. That's right. And if you read the book of Esther, you'll see they figured out a creative way to counteract that irrevocable law. Notice that the law is only going to last 30 days. They know Daniel, they know his prayer habits, and they know his devotion to God. So they were confident 30 days would have been more than enough to catch him. Absolutely. So, Rose, you you said this, but I'm going to say it again, and you emphasized it. These guys said that all the satraps, all the high officials told the king, you know, all of them were behind this. It was a lie to say that all the high officials agreed to this. So, They're trying to obscure from King Darius's mind that Daniel would be affected by this. And another thing to say that they all agree, or we all agree, it would help the people of the land to submit to it because people are much more happy to follow along and never question what they're doing when the leaders and the majority of the people are like-minded about it. Right. And if they were trying to remain secretive about it, they weren't really doing a very good job going behind Daniel's back because Daniel knows about the decree. Scripture tells us when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And that's according to Daniel 6 verses 10 and 11. Daniel could have just decided to refrain from prayer for 30 days. He could have come home that day from the edict signing and closed the windows, or he could have said to himself, it's only 30 days. God will understand. He could have tried to hide it, like I said. But for Daniel, that would be sinful. So, Rose, let's stop and talk about why that would be sinful for Daniel for a minute. Yeah, because I think that's an important point. There are sins of commission. That's sins of transgressing God's law by doing something we're commanded not to do. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have been guilty of had they bowed to the statue. And that's how we often think about sins. But there's also sins of omission, and that's things we know we're supposed to do, but we don't. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sin as any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. And that's from the Westminster Shorter Catechism number 14. Brian Crosby of Ligonier Ministries puts it this way. Put simply, a sin of omission is any lack of conformity to God's law or failing to do what God commands, 
which is as grievous as actively transgressing what he commands. It's an important thing to think about. You know, like you said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were supposed to commit the act of spiritual adultery and worship the idol or else be killed. If Daniel followed this law, his sin would be an act of omission. In other words, he would sin by not doing something. Now, we're not commanded in the Bible to pray three times a day the way that Daniel did. We're going to talk about why Daniel did it that way in a moment. But this three times a day prayer was his normal routine. If he had changed it, it would have been for sinful reasons, and it would have been sinful for him to do it. He would have been forsaking God because of fear of man. And James 4.17 says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. And Chris, that just reminds me, that's exactly why these pastors are standing up when their churches got closed. They mm-hmm. could have just go, they could have gone along with it, but this is exactly what Daniel did. And it would have been fear of man that they were going along with it. And that's a great point because we're going to talk more about the fact that we might have to do this stuff too a lot more. All right. So I want to quote a little more from Ligonier Ministries because their article was really good on this. Here's the quote. While it's certainly true that we can sin without realizing it, sins of omission are intensified by knowledge. When we know what God has commanded us in his word and we fail to do it, then we've silenced the voice of conscience and sinned against him. Mr. Crosby goes on in that Table Talk article to say that we commit sins of omission when we lack conformity to God's law in our thoughts and desires, when we fail to love God with all our hearts and minds, when we don't take every thought captive to obey Christ, and when we don't rejoice in the Lord always. Those are tough words to hear. They are. They They are are painfully convicting words. You know, we can get to thinking pretty highly of ourselves when we think of sin as only sins of commission. And like I said, ouch, (laughs) ouch. (laughs) You can't say amen, at least say ouch. Yes, that's exactly right, Vodi. Let's take a moment and talk about uh, why Daniel prayed the three times a day, windows open, facing Jerusalem. Like you said, this is not a prescriptive way to pray for any of us. No, it's not. And Daniel did this because when the temple was completed under King Solomon, Solomon petitioned God, if your people go out in the battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord towards the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin and you are angry with them. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul and pray to you towards their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. So there's a lot more to that prayer that's found in first Kings eight and it's in 44 to 53. I just read a little bit of it. Right. And the reason we're reading that to you was the point is Daniel is facing toward Jerusalem because he's following the petitions of Solomon's prayer. And we're going to see him do that again. He didn't have to pray three times a day, windows open, facing Jerusalem. At that point, the city was destroyed in the temple along with it. So he was praying towards a heap of stones and rubble. <laughs> but like we said, we point that out because he's doing that. And we're going to see this again in chapter nine, 
following the prayer of Solomon back then. But that's that's why he was doing that that way. It's not prescriptive for us. Right. And like you said, if he had stopped, it would have only been for the fear of man. Oh, yeah. Chris, we already read the scripture of what happens next. But just to summarize, like we said, when Daniel found out about the document, what did he do? He did exactly what he did every day. Got down on his knees, opened the window, prayed, and made petition to God. And these guys, as they planned, came in and found them that way. You know, Daniel could have done a lot of things to keep himself out of trouble that he knew was going to lead to death, but he didn't. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel knows who holds his life and everyone else's in their hand. Wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, wasn't Belshazzar, and it's not King Darius now. Nope, it's God. You know, Rose, it's ironic that the high officials have tried to make King Darius a 30-day intercessor for the people of the land and the only intercessor for them for 30 days. And they did that to get to Daniel, who was truly intercessing for his people. Yeah, you know? good point. Daniel was an intercessor for God's people. He prayed intercessory prayer for them, as we're going to see from Solomon's prayer in chapter 9. And that's another picture of Jesus, who is our intercessor now. Right. Chris, it it makes me think of all the times the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus and trip him up, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's something about the way Daniel handles himself that we should take note of. After the edict is signed, he goes home and prays like he always does. He doesn't hide it from anyone, but neither does he flaunt it out in public. You know, he doesn't go out in the public square and make a big deal about it. He just keeps going about his business as usual. Again, I just keep thinking about the pastors. They didn't make a big deal about it. They just opened their churches. Absolutely. You know, if our churches get closed again, we don't have to make a public spectacle of going to worship. The watching world will eventually take notice. You know, throwing our disdain for unjust authority in the face of those who don't agree with us usually just leads to nothing but fighting and quarrels. But our peaceful, confident trust in God as we go about our normal routines can speak volumes. And Chris, sometimes that is very hard. Mm-hmm. But yep, you're absolutely it right. It's the right thing to do. Daniel had to choose between following God's law or following man's law. You know, Romans 13 is a chapter that's been thrown around a lot this year because of it says submit to government and because of the COVID-19 closures. Should we always follow that? No, we shouldn't. We should not blindly obey everything our government tells us or might tell us to do, not when it goes against God's law. Acts 5.29 says we must obey God rather than man. And we should really put a whole lot of thought into this and all the aspects when it's questionable at all. We can't just buy into any narrative. We need to think deeply. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We do. And I think you hit the nail on the head. We need to think deeply about each of these issues when it's going to affect something like this. We can't just blindly say, well, Romans 13 says we need to follow the government and then just do it. We, We need to think deeply about all the ramifications that go with each of these things. And I think they're going to come up more and more. I hate to say that, but getting back to Daniel's story, the enemies go in like tattletales and tell the king that Daniel was praying to God, but this king likes Daniel. He doesn't really want to put him in the lion's den, probably wants to put those other guys in the lion's (laughs) den. 
I would by now. But, you know, he signed the edict and it can't be reversed. And they're there to remind him for, I think, the third time that Persian law can't be changed just to make sure that Daniel is on the Lions menu for that night. (laughs) You know, this king really does seem like Daniel a lot. He just reminds me he's in the same position as King Xerxes. Didn't think about it, signed an edict that can't be reversed, and he's regretting it. Although kings don't ever admit they regret anything. No. The text says that he labored until the sun went down and tried to rescue him. That's really caring about someone. I mean, he's the king and he's really trying to rescue Daniel. There's allusions to Jesus before Pilate here. Now, of course, we're not making the exact comparison because Pilate didn't feel about Jesus the way King Darius feels about Daniel. But Jesus was bought before Pilate by unjust men with unjust charges. And Pilate did try to find ways to save him. Exactly. Exactly. But for Daniel, when the men came a third time to the king, the king had to command that Daniel be brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. I just picture these guys as little weasels. <laughs> Me too. And that's exactly why I would have probably already thrown them in the lion's den. And, and I would have made sure the lions are hungry first, like really, really hungry. Well, Chris, you might get your wish. Yeah. <laughs> So Daniel was as good as dead when he was thrown down into that pit. A stone was rolled across it to seal any chance of escape. Similar to Jesus's dead body being put in the tomb and the stone rolled in place and guards placed there to make sure that nobody stole the body. Daniel's in his own stone tomb as good as dead. And his fate is sealed with the signet ring of the king so that by human standards, absolutely nothing could be changed about his fate. And interestingly enough, the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. It tells us with no diversions and no sleep. This guy really did want to see Daniel survive. At the break of day, scripture tells us the king ran to the den of lions. So the king spent the night worrying and fasting, unable to sleep. Now, scripture doesn't say that Daniel did sleep, but he certainly could have knowing that the angel had closed the mouth of the lion. The point is that one spent a wakeful, fretful night in the lap of luxury, while the other had a peaceful night in the midst of trial. Philippians 4, 6-7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Certainly, this is the kind of peace Daniel must have felt that night. The heathen, impenitent people have no such comfort when trials come. And Chris, you know, we hear persecuted Christians saying that they have this kind of peace. Yeah, you do hear that a lot. And Rose, I've said it before, but I don't even know how you send your 16-year-old out in the car without knowing God and having that kind of peace. That's a great point. I just don't ever. That's a great point. I'll read a little bit more. I'll read the next three verses of Daniel 6. It says, as he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. 
I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Back in the ancient Near East, it was common practice to say, oh, king, live forever when addressing the king. We've seen it over and over in this book. The men who put Daniel in the lion's den at first addressed King Darius this way. But the next two times they come, remember they said, we said they ran back three times. They don't use these words, or at least they're not recorded. Did they really care if the king lived forever? Probably only if it was going to benefit them. But even after being put in the lines then basically by the king, because it was his edict he signed, Daniel says, oh, king live forever. But Daniel goes on further to tell the king about the one who is truly able to save, the one true God. You know, it's likely that Daniel would have liked King Darius to live forever. He seems fond of him, just like he was fond of Nebuchadnezzar. So, Chris, did Darius ever believe in the one true God? He says things that are similar to Nebuchadnezzar, but still refers to God as the God of Daniel, not his own personal God. Yeah, and I'm, we're not told whether Darius ever really believed or not. But like you said, he does refer to him as Daniel's God, the God of Daniel. So. Who knows? But we'll find out someday. Daniel 6, 25 to 27 says, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he's the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So, Chris, here's where you get your wish. What happened to Daniel's false accusers? A lot of times when this is told in Sunday school, they kind of leave this part out. And I guess it can be a little graphic, but I think it's important that kids know this. Me too. The accusers, their children, and their wives are cast into the den of lions. And scripture says they were overpowered by the lions before they ever reached the bottom of the den. The Bible says when the lions overpowered them, they broke all their bones in pieces. So why did the families get thrown in the lion's den too? Well, it's because it was in accordance with a common principle in the ancient Near East that anyone who makes a false charge against someone should be punished by receiving the same fate. It was also practice of the Persians to carry that edict out on the whole family of the guilty. And if we remember back in Joshua's time when Achan stole something and broke holy law, his whole family and belongings were destroyed too. And Korah in Korah's rebellion, when he offered strange fire, it was him and his family. That's right. So that was a practice of the time. It was. Daniel said, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. The fact that the accusers and their families were killed by the lions is proof that they were guilty before God. Yep. And verse 28 ends the chapter. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. You know, Daniel spent most of his life in exile in Babylon. God preserved Daniel's life throughout the whole time, and he ended up being an intercessor for the people of God who were exiled with him. And it's soon after this, under the authority of King Cyrus, that the exiles will go home. 
They won't all go because they won't all choose to go, but they will have the opportunity to go home and rebuild the temple and the city. Right. And Daniel doesn't go because he's just too old by this point. So let's talk about some takeaways from today's chapter. Daniel has a consistent prayer life. He's not only on his knees when the trials come, he's on his knees before and after and during the trials. Absolutely. And he never loses faith when his prayers don't seem to be answered. God doesn't promise a comfortable life. He doesn't promise that we won't suffer persecution, even to the point of death. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his book called The Cost of Discipleship, wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer explains that this is not, for most Christians, a literal death, but rather a death to self. We all have to deal with that. But Rose, it could be a literal death. You know, and we need to start asking ourselves, are we up for that? And if you don't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, we'll just give a quick bio here. He was a pastor in Germany, in Nazi Germany, during the occupation. And while most of the churches were going to become the state religion, as Hitler wanted, Bonhoeffer stood up with some other men, and they kept a solid biblical church. And for it, they were going to be killed. Bonhoeffer escaped to the United States, but he felt so guilty about leaving his fellow Germans, he went back knowing that it was going to cost him his life. You know, politics matter. They mattered for Daniel and the rest of the Jews, as we saw in history. They mattered for Bonhoeffer, and they mattered for us now. Our votes matter. Chris, a year and a half ago, we would have never believed that the government would recommend closing our church doors to flatten the curve of a virus spread. What happens if they decide they want to do that again for as long as they want to? What happens if they say, we're just going to close churches permanently? What if they require vaccine passports to go to church? They're already doing it for some things. Doing it to go to church doesn't seem that far-fetched. What if they decide you always have to wear a mask in church and can never sing when you're in church? We would have never believed that in Canada, people would be arrested and churches would lose their property and be fenced out and have armed guards around so they couldn't get into their own church. Yeah, uh, you ask a lot of really good questions that we need to think through so that when it happens, we're prepared. Yes. Politics matter. Like you said, just this past month, we witnessed a president of our country, the United States, make a decision that left Christians and women and children in a position of life and death by pulling our military out of the country of Afghanistan in one fell swoop without a plan when they could have saved many. That's right. And encouragingly, we see a lot of Christians going in there to try to save these people, but it's not the government doing it. If you've never been able to imagine a time when we could possibly see legalized persecution of Christians in any country, including the United States, it's time to wake up. It's been happening all over the world. I'm sure some of you watching or listening probably face persecution on a daily basis. There are countries right now where it's illegal to be a Christian. It's illegal to own a Bible. It's illegal to have worship of God. And you know what? For those of us living in the United States, it's time to wake up. It might be coming on our doorstep. It might. And we have not been some great nation that God's been protecting and keeping from it. We just need to be thankful that we don't have it yet. But it's not because of us. It's solely God's grace. That's right. That's important. 
There's only one judge who will determine our eternal fate. Daniel was found innocent in God's sight. And we can be found that way too if we're trusting in Jesus's death on the cross as payment and the punishment that we deserve for our sin. He lived the perfect life for us and took the punishment that we deserve. But it's only by the blood of the lamb that we can be found not guilty like Daniel. That's right. And that's a good place to end for today. Don't forget to check out our website, www.proverbs910ministries.com for information and resources. And if you like what you've been hearing on this podcast, please leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Have a blessed day, everybody. 